This episode's brought to you by everynowheremusic.com. Yep, you got that right. That's yours truly. So if this is an endeavor you'd like to support, please come and sign up for my newsletter at everynowheremusic.com. Every nowhere or every now here, depending on whichever way you prefer to look at it. Kirana Lawalio is a sister, but more importantly, a pioneer in her field. I highly recommend you go check out the music and all the links included in the episode notes. I think this conversation kind of speaks for itself, so I'm not going to take up too much time with an introduction, which uh, isn't really needed. Her work speaks for itself, her story speaks for itself, so without much further ado, let's do this. Hello fellow beings, welcome to Tapasya Loading, a safe space to attempt honest, raw and authentic conversation in homage to the ancient act of stoking a sacred fire. And we're officially rolling. All right, can you hear me? I hear you perfectly. You hear me okay? Absolutely. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, getting a late start to my Sunday. Apologies again for the 15 minutes and thank you for giving that to me. Ah, no worries at all. Thanks for coming on. I'm very stoked to have you uh, on the show. Pleasure to be on the show. People keep calling it a show, and uh, I'm not sure at which point I started calling it a show too. Aww. But uh, just <laughs> FYI, the idea behind this was to just have informal conversations amidst artists to kind of um, get away from the whole um, irregular interview kind of a vibe. Uh, that makes any sense. That that makes a lot of sense. That's great. Excellent. Um, I start off with kind of reminiscing on where my first memory of my guests come from. Mm-hmm. And in your case, it is a haunting strain mm-hmm. I heard on your husband and musical partner's uh, album Bazaar. Oh, okay, okay. That is the first time I heard you sing. Uh, I got to come clean. Um, I mean... Um, I'm not sure if Rez told you, I've, I've been stalking for a couple of decades now, so I've really <laughs> been into his music for a while. And <laughs> no, you didn't yeah. tell me, you did not tell me, that's cute, thank you. But then, um, obviously, I discovered your music as a result, and my familiarity with the same is a little more recent than with Rez's, but I'm already a fan. Oh, thank you. Um. Where's the best place to start? Where where would you say your musical journey started, Karen? Uh, probably in the womb while my mom was singing. Um, my parents were were very passionate about music. They never did it professionally, but they were very passionate about music, both of them. And as as young adults, they would participate in music competitions in their respective colleges. And uh, they would go to music parties, uh, as in, you know, they would have other friends who loved music. And whenever they had to get together, part of the evening was always going to be people going around and singing a song. And so, you know, yeah, I probably heard my mom in the womb uh, singing and my dad. Um, And then, of course, I think just like most people, like, you know, singing nursery rhymes, Mother Goose nursery rhymes. Um, and then I started learning formally Indian classical music at a very young age in India. I was about, you know, about five years old when I, when my parents hired a teacher to come to our, 
house and and teach me, you know, once a week. So that was my first. Wow. That room you referred to, may I ask where exactly that was? The room? Yeah. Uh, the room where um, I... Uh, um, As in, yeah, geographically spoken, because I know you've grown up in different places too, uh, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. yeah, so all of this, you know, where my first uh, teaching, uh, formal teaching started and where I was born was a place called Patna in India, in the state of Bihar. Oh, yeah, that's very close to where I was born. Oh, really? Where? Yeah, I was born in Calcutta before I left when I was seven months old and spent my formative years in different parts. But I was just about born in Calcutta. I mean, I think I've even been to Patna. Okay. Wow. Okay. Yeah, yeah it, it, it was, it was used to be known as the most corrupt state, but it has changed. It's, it's done quite a bit of a facelift and I haven't been back, but, but uh, yeah, it's changed. For the better, I think. It's also the state where uh, Buddha was born, something a lot of people don't know about. Yes, and just uh, like relatively close to Patna is a place called Rajgir, where I think where the Buddha attained enlightenment. Did he attain? No, he, I think he meditated there. I'm not sure if he uh, attained enlightenment there, but there was a huge... In the Rajgir is a place where the Buddha did something really uh, big, like, I don't know, meditate a big time or and like get enlightened. I don't remember anymore, but, you know, we would we would go there on on trips when I was a child. Beautiful. How long um, did you live in Patna? So much like you it's uh, a lot of here and there in my life i was born in patna and then right away uh we went to new zealand because wow yeah because my father was getting a phd in microbiology and he got a nice scholarship in new zealand so my mm. mom my dad and i we all you know went to new zealand where we were for about uh i think a little over a little over 4 years and then when i came back to india I was five years old. Very familiar story. Good <laughs> guy. <laughs> and then I was in India. We were in India for four years uh, until I was nine. And then we went to Canada. Uh, and Canada is uh, the place I really call home. Uh, that's where mm -hmm. I grew up. Um, that's where I continued studying music part-time, Indian music. And then as an adult, I returned to India um, to study music full-time for over a decade. Wow. And now I've been, uh, I divide my time between Toronto, Canada, and New York City. Right now I'm in New York City. Yes. And uh, I've been doing that, you know, living in, you know, both Canada and New York City for uh, 16 years. Beautiful. Could we talk a little about that? earliest part of your life, your childhood, and the effects it might possibly have had on your artistic persona, long run, you know, the constant blur of backdrops. Sure. Um, at which point did you realize that a lot of people out there wouldn't call a childhood like that, uh, so-called, you know, and I'm, I'm, and I'm doing quote marks here, a normal one? Um, I don't know if I ever made a conscious decision that that childhood wasn't normal. But I remember that 
it was like I was probably in my late 20s that I kind of realized that actually a lot of us are what we call we have hyphenated cultures mm-hmm. and and we have citizenship to more than one culture mm-hmm. um so I was aware of of that part that um you know perhaps I'm a multi-hyphenate culture Beautiful. where someone is you know Canadian Indian or American Pakistani um yeah. that I I could have some multiples but 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 I really since the very first years of my life and the very first memories of my life are in New Zealand and to this day my mother and then she passed on the recipe to me we make a very distinctly distinctively or distinctly New Zealand uh, kind of a cake, a sweet dish called Lemmington's. Um, and so even though I have all these memories of the sheep shearing and other memories from New Zealand and this, you know, one thing that we hold on to, the Lemmington's, I don't yeah. actually identify with, um, you know, being from New Zealand. And uh, all the other places I've lived, you know, the cities I've lived in San Francisco, I've lived in Halifax, Nova Scotia, and Canada. Um, wow. So, so, so I've, I've moved around, of course, in Bombay and, and Delhi and Hyderabad, but I, I mostly identify with India and Canada. Mm-hmm. And now uh, living in the New York City, um, I don't really identify even as an American, but I identify as a New Yorker. Yeah, I totally get that. Yeah. Yeah. I feel very, very comfortable calling myself a Londoner, but no way I could call myself British. Oh, <laughs> wow. That's very interesting. How long were you there yeah. in Britain? Um, off and on. Um, I think it was, um, well, honestly, at, at one stretch as a child, I was there for two years, but that was actually the first time in my entire life I lived in one city for a stretch of two years, mm. which is why somewhere deep inside, I think something in my brain hardwired that name London as home, and it's never changed since. So all the travels that ensued since then was always some other destination away from London. What did your parents do to have you move so much? They were both doctors. Okay. What, what kind? Yeah. Uh, dad's a gastroenterologist, um, and my mum's a radiologist. Okay, wow. <sighs> Forgive me, I went on a tangent there. We were talking about you. Um, mm. No, it was a, as you said, it was a chat. So I was, I was. Yeah. We were chatting. <laughs> <laughs> we were. I want to say I apologize if I used the word normal inappropriately. I was actually probably projecting some of the um, uh, occasions I've. Uh, faced a situation where my childhood would be labeled abnormal by a certain demographic. One reason, in my case, for example, music became what I ended up doing for a living was it seemed to be the only constant I could take wherever I was. Um, is that something you could relate to? Um, it wasn't consciously that. It wasn't, I never said consciously that I'm doing music because it's the only constant. Um, I think I, I mean, I was attracted to music just as a child because my parents had it everywhere. And I guess I could have rejected it as a child, like if I didn't have an aptitude or I didn't have a liking to it, but I just had an aptitude and I liked it and it was fun right from the get-go. But then as an adult or even as a teenager, I would say, 
when it was my choice to continue learning or not, because, um, you know, as a child, it was my teachers, my, my parents putting me in, in music school. But um, as a teenager, it just, uh, it brought me solace. It was, it was therapy. And I didn't, I didn't realize it then, but it would give me a lot of peace and, and, uh, I had a, in Canada, I would say I had a very lonely childhood. Um, oh, and so, so music, uh, I'm an only child, so I don't have brothers and sisters. Oh, me too. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. Hard relate. <laughs> and, uh, you know, being new in Canada and when we had just moved to Canada, we moved around to different cities. We went to Toronto, then we went to Hamilton, then we came back to Toronto and then changed schools and stuff. So, um, it was a little hard to, it became hard to establish good friendships. It wasn't until my teenage years that, that I really got a best friend. And so in all that time, music was, was my companion and it, 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 uh, soothed me. Yeah. Yeah. I can very well relate to that. It was my pacifier. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, you, you said you start off uh, with Indian classical music from the very beginning. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, I, I'm actually not a huge expert on Indian classical music. So maybe, especially for our listeners, uh, maybe you could um, take us through exactly how the entire process ensued in the formative years. Yeah. So, uh, I, I was, as a child, singing many things. So I was singing um, Bollywood tunes as well. So they would come on the radio, and I would like the song, and I would want to sing it. So I would start singing it. And then the next time it came on the radio, my mother would write down quickly all the words. And so then every time it came on the radio, I would grab that piece of paper, and I would try to sing along. And in that way, I would, you know, wait for it on the radio and, you know, three, four, five tries, and I'd be singing the whole song. Um, so I was singing Bollywood. I was also uh, being taught Shabad Kirtan, which are um, hymns and spirituals in the Sikh religion, um, which is the religion I belong to or I, that I follow, kind of. <laughs> and um, so my parents... Uh, were, were part of a congregation that would meet in someone's house every Friday and and people in the congregation would sing hymns. And so I would prepare hymns to sing there in the service and my parents taught me those. Wow. And, and then also um, they, for formal training, it was Indian classical music that they put me in. And the reason for that is in India, they say that Indian classical music is the basis uh, that you can, it's a launching pad for you to be able to sing anything. Uh, the, yeah. the reason for that is because you learn a lot of rags, which are at, at a very basic definition. They're a scale, they're scales, rags are different scales and modes. But yeah. but they are much more than that. But that's a basic definition. Yeah. Um, so you learn a lot of scales and intervals and notes, and and 
you l- learn improvisation eventually, not 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 in the first few years, but eventually you learn to improvise. And um, so it's a really good basis uh, if you you know want to sing anything and want to end up composing. Beautiful. Um, I tend to agree with that. I, I, I've had a teacher for um, uh, singing as well who also comes from the Indian classical realm. And, um, well, mostly, I mean, he's, I'm, I'm probably his worst student officially. <laughs> uh, um, but I, I think the biggest lesson I've learned through it is breathing, uh, with a, a topic which is amazingly enough still not addressed, um, with the degree of importance it deserves sometimes in vocal lessons. And, um, I realized later on in college that one of the reasons I found a lot of things to do on vocals easier uh, was that training I'd had as a kid. I was very thankful uh, for that. Um, you did hint on how ragas are mm, scales and modes on a basic level, mm-hmm. although there's actually more. Any chance I could uh, convince you into telling us about the more part? Oh, sure. Yeah, mm-hmm. sure. Um, so, yeah, a rag starts off with as a scale that means it has a it has a set of ascending notes you go up the scale and it has a set of descending notes you come down the scale um and you can have um five notes in the scale six seven eight nine ten all the way up to 12 notes in the scale um but the reason why rag is different than just a scale is because each rag has its own rules. So, for example, if we were to take a rag like Puriya Dhanashri, um, it has a flat second. Uh, it, it probably um, might not mean anything to some of your listeners, so I'll just skip that part. So it, it has a set of notes, but mm-hmm. so it has um, it has seven notes, but going up the scale, you don't take the fifth note. You skip it. So you take the first, second, third, fourth, and then you go all the way to the sixth note and then the seventh note and then the, then the root again. And then you take the fifth only when you're coming down. So that's one rule of Puriya Dhanashri. There are other rules, but that's one rule. So what that means in practical terms, is that if you're going to improvise in the pure Indian classical tradition, um, which I, I I don't improvise in the pure Indian classical tradition, my music is is modern. I write original modern Indian songs, so my music is informed uh, by Indian classical music. But I don't necessarily follow all the rules. But if you were mm-hmm. going to follow the rules of Indian classical music, then if you were improvising in this rag, Puriya Dhanashri, and you're improvising and you're merrily going along your way and you're singing the first and the second and the third and the fourth, and you've touched the fifth, what that would mean is that you can't improvise on the higher tones because you're not allowed to go up having taken the fifth. That would that means that you would go to the fifth and then you would have to come down again, at least to the fourth or whatever note down down below the fifth, and then go again to the fourth and then or somehow skip the fifth and then go to the sixth. So that's one rule of Puriya Dhanashri. And 
One, the last thing I'll say about that is that there are at least two other rags that I know of. There are probably more, but there are at least two other rags that I know of that have the exact same notes as Purya Dhanashri. So as a scale, they have the same scale, but they have different rules. You know, one of them, you can take the fifth on the way up, but maybe you have to emit the second on the way down. So they have different rules. And when, when you adhere to those rules, um, if you don't adhere to the rules, of course, the same set of notes is going to sound the same and going to create the same mood. But when you mm-hmm. adhere to those rules, then skipping certain notes and, 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 and obeying those rules will produce slightly different moods when singing each of those three rags that happen to have the same set of notes. That was such a beautiful explanation. Thank you for that. Oh yeah, my pleasure. I've always wondered what exactly is the significance behind that system? Like it sounds to me, um, it's always sounded to me like it's um, it's like it's like a it's like a journey you take, like each raga with separate routes to and back from the destination, whatever you know. Destination being a proverbial term here. Um, what I've never managed to find out is what exactly, who came up with that idea of taking the same note, set of notes and using different permutations and combinations in ascension and descension. Yeah. Uh, w- w- what was the intent behind that? Uh, we don't really know exactly who came up with all the rags because there are tens of thousands of rags in the Indian classical system. There are some rags that have been attributed to Amir Khusro, um, a, um, who was a, a Persian uh, musician who came to India in the Mughal rule in the 14th, in the 1400s late 1400s, and brought many things with with him, many musical things. So, um, And he was a court musician, so he was a musician in the court of the Mughal king at the time. And so that's why he influenced Indian music a lot. So there are some rags attributed to him, but the rags that are before that, we don't know who came up with them, and we don't know... Well, I mean, I like uh, the the rules. I can only I can only assume that they came up with the rules because they decided that oh well, it creates a different mood if you do that, mm-hmm. and you know, so that was a neat thing that it creates a different mood. Um, yeah. Thanks for that. The information you use from the Indian classical music and the way you use it has gone on to um, basically carve out the very characteristic sound you you've established as the Kiran Aluwalia sound mm. um wh- when did that start where when ex- to start off it you're one of the very few uh, artists in this genre uh, in fact honestly the only one and who one I know who writes her own songs um yeah really the only person I know I don't know if there are others out there my apologies if I'm saying you know uh, anything inaccurate um so number one when exactly did you find out that okay uh, here are my roots and now i want to do my own thing with it and secondly why do you think you're the only one who we know about who went ahead and did that Mm. well um i always knew that i didn't want to be an indian classical singer 
uh, in what I do. I, May I ask why? Oh, um, I was more attracted to the genre of guzzle, which is a highly mm. poetic form. And mm-hmm. so even as a child, even though, even though the content, the lyrical content of guzzles, which are songs of passion and unrequited passion, um, mm. even though the content of these, of this, of these songs, the guzzles are far beyond the reach of a child, I was still, however, attracted to both the lyrics and the melodies and the rhythms of ghazal music. And my parents were ghazal lovers, so we listened, I grew up listening to a lot of ghazals, both them singing it, other people singing them in parties, um, and also um, th- them playing a lot of tapes, taking me to concerts. And at that Beautiful. time of my, of my growing up, in the 70s, they were still Bollywood music was still very ghazal like, mm. um, very different. So I was surrounded by it, and I loved it. And so because of that, of that attraction to the lyrics, that that would just you know make me melt, as well as the melody making me melt. That's what what my my love was. I was learning Indian classical music always to be a better ghazal singer. And so um, you know on that on the decade long escapade in India, I started learning Indian classical music in Bombay with Padma Talwalkar. But then I also went to Hyderabad to, to learn ghazal uh, singing by uh, maestro Vithal Rao in Hyderabad. And so then when I came back to Canada, I recorded in the year 2000, my very first album. It was ghazal that I recorded. And I also am Punjabi, so I also wanted some Punjabi folk songs because they're fun and uh, most of the ghazal singers like Gulam Ali, Jigjit Singh Singh, whose concerts that I'd gone to, would mix the two. They were both Punjabis. They would sing ghazal and Punjabi folk songs. So I was used to that mixture. So what happened there is for my first recording, my record label, who the recording was going to be with, they first encouraged me to compose my own, my own melodies Um, Mm. at the same time, because I was not yet a composer at the same time, my friends, one was a Kathak dancer in Toronto. One was a violinist in Toronto. They were both doing projects and they said, we want you to compose. And I was like, well, you know, I I can't compose. I haven't composed before. I didn't say I can't, but I said, you know, it's not what I do. I haven't done it. And they were like, well, we don't have anyone. You, you, you have to. Mm. And because of just the necessity of my friend's needing something original to fulfill their project, I, you know, started composing and the record label wanting me, just ask, simply asking me to compose, I started, you know, composing. And then um, after a few records, I started to fall in love with music outside, that is outside of Indian music. I fell in love with Portuguese fado music. Oh yeah, beautiful. I fell in love with um, uh, Tuareg music, which is music of the Saharan nomads um, oh, yeah, yeah. from Algeria and Mali. And so when I started falling in love with this music and when I wanted to include these other kinds of influences, also fell in love with jazz and, and Reza Bassi, the guitar player who you had interviewed earlier, uh, mm-hmm. became my, when I met him, he quickly became my partner. And so with his influence, so I wanted to 
bring a lot of other influences into into in my Indian music. And what I found was I was already a composer at this point, but the lyrics, guzzle lyrics that I would I would find poems and then compose them. But the poems I was finding in the guzzle genre weren't going weren't going to lend themselves very easily to what I wanted to do melodically. How so? Well, because a guzzle has a very distinct it has a very distinct flavor and it's and and tempo and the way it goes and the rhyming scheme is very different. You cannot get off of the rhyming scheme. You can't have mm-hmm. like another portion that goes into a different tangent. Um, it, it's all within a rag and within the well, it could be out of the rag too. But it's it's um it's hard to explain. It would be, it would be something that I would have to demonstrate. Like we would have to listen to some guzzles, and then we would have to listen to songs that aren't guzzles to show what you can't do with guzzle poetry. And so, so once again, there was a necessity. Here I am. I am wanting to put in this Tuareg African music. I want to sing with it, and I can't use a guzzle in it. It's going to sound cheesy, um, mm. and just like a cut and paste, and there's no, going to be no integration. It's not going to be organically grown together. And so, because of that necessity, again. I would listen to African rhythms and phrases and modes and see where I want the melody to go. And then I started composing my own words. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so because of necessity, that's how, how well, well, one, a love of all these other musics and then a necessity to be able to incorporate them and integrate them and work with them from the ground up. Um, I, I started writing my own lyrics and um, then the second part of your question was why do I why am I the only one doing that? Um, well, uh, traditionally in Indian music, the lyricist and the composer, the music composer, have always been two people. So it's just mm-hmm. a rare thing in our tradition, in the American and Canadian North American, I should say, uh, singing tradition. There is something called the singer songwriter. Um, right. A person who writes their own songs, makes their own melody, and plays their own guitar. Yeah. Um, that doesn't exist in India. You have a separate lyricist. You have a separate music composer. However, I had a love of ghazal, so I studied that ghazal poetry. So when I was in India learning music, I went to Pakistan to study um, Sufiana Kalam, which is another genre, and study the poetry from 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 people in Pakistan who could tell me about it. Um, I studied uh, the poetry even in Toronto, just, you know, by myself. And then here in New York City for the last 16 years, I have belonged to a, a Urdu poetry club. Uh, we meet every Fridays. Now we meet on Zoom. <laughs> mm. and, um, and, and, and so I basically, you know, c- continued to study poetry and, that has helped me to expand my own vocabulary when I'm writing, whereas a lot of other uh, singers may not have also studied poetry, and they may not have had that necessity that they want to include another type of music that that I had. I really fell in love and in in love till this day with 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 Mali and West African Tuareg rhythms and phrases, and and 
just have a deep desire to work with that. Beautiful. That resonates deeply with me. Um, especially most because I spent a, um, a large chunk of my formative years in the Middle East. Oh. So I grew up listening to strains of music very similar to what you were referring to. This might come across as silly, but uh, as a kid, I, I mean, what, I'm three or four, I never actually had realized that there were supposed to be different genres of music in the first place. Like a lot of music from North India or Pakistan and a lot of music from North Africa. To my child years, I thought it was the same thing. It's only much later that I realized, amidst all the travel and the chaos, that they're supposed to be different traditions. And um, it is. I think it, it is exactly that. You don't. You think yeah. we are all the same, and when you travel, you realize, oh, I'm different. I know, right? And and that's what it is. When I landed in Canada, there was nobody who had my skin color on television, um, or in in positions of power in the government. Uh, like there are now, um, and so you really. Which year was this? This was in the seventies, nineteen, oh, okay, maybe yeah, like seventy-two yeah. or seventy-four, something like that. Yeah. And um, you realize, like, that's where you realize, oh, I'm not white. Mm. Uh, but that never occurred to me in India that I'm not white or brown or what I am. Skin color doesn't matter. Uh, yeah. It's only when you come to the. Uh, come out of your homeland where people look, ex- you know, similar to you. When you come out of that, that you realize, oh, okay, there, I'm an other. It's uh, interesting how the inner reflections kind of directly translate to the outer surroundings as well. I mean, um, the way the music kind of is very reflective of what's going out, um, uh, going on, extrinsically. Mm-hmm. So. You're now at the point where you you decide to start writing your own music and you're studying poetry heavily. Correct me if I'm wrong. Okay. Um, uh, I noticed, though, when you describe some of the um, uh, mechanics of music, you use mainstream Western nomenclature like, you know, the intervals and five mm-hmm. seconds and so on. Yeah. When did that happen? So you're obviously familiar with that language. Uh, at what, which point did that happen? How and how's it been amalgamating the two languages? Um, uh, at the, the point that it happened was when I started to give workshops on Indian music. And I, I was giving workshops on Indian music to people who were not familiar with anything but Western music. And, uh. and so my partner and husband, Reza Basi, guitarist as well, my guitarist, <laughs> Rez, uh, we spoke together and I told him what I wanted to say. And he said, well, this is the word we use for it. And then beyond that, he asked me questions that perhaps a student would have been too scared to ask me, you know, in a workshop. And so he asked huh. me questions and that helped me develop that, oh, okay, these are the important parts of what makes a rag that I have to talk about because they don't know that. Um, so he helped me, I credit Rez with helping me develop a lot of how I communicate about the technicalities of our music. Um, but, but you know, how hard is that? Well, in the beginning, um, because Rez and I compose a lot of music together, I write the lyrics, I write my melody, and then we, he arranges it. But Mm-hmm. It's not always that like neat and clean. I'll write a little bit 
and then we'll start arranging it. He'll, you know, we'll start singing it together and he'll arrange, start arranging it. And then I'll go back, change something that didn't work and then make a fuller song depending on where he's also taking it. Uh, at other times he's just sitting on the couch playing something and I'm like, Oh my God, I love those chords. And I take out my phone and record them. And then later, wow. yeah. And then later I'll record a melody and come up with words that fit that, those chords. So we, we work a lot together in different ways. And at the very beginning of our working together, um, we would get into a lot of arguments simply because of nomenclature, like simply because of you know, us, when we would stop, for example, and say, where should we start? Where should we pick up the song from? Instead of starting it right, right from the beginning. This is just one example. You know, we, we started the song, now we've stopped. And where should we start again if we're not going to start from the beginning? And that simple communication of how to communicate as to where we're going to start the song. And he says, we're going to start it at the A or the B. And I'm like, I don't know what the A or the B is in your mind. I'm going to start it from this tight or the chorus. And he's like, well, what's the chorus? <laughs> I feel so much better about myself right now. <laughs> you have no idea. Oh, really? Do you have a, do you, do you have a partner that you have those conversations with as well? <laughs> I wish, I wish, but no, enough, enough collaborators with whom I've been in the same boat on. Right, right. Exactly. Yeah. And so somehow things would escalate at the very beginning of our relationship. Somehow things would escalate, we would argue, and then, you know, someone would slam a door and leave the room, and that would be the end of that session. Um, <laughs> <laughs> How very Indian. <laughs> um, and then we realized that, okay, you know, we're, we're, you know, dare I say good at making up. We, we both of us don't very, very realize very early on in our partnership and our relationship that, that we're not going to be able to stop getting mad at each other, but we don't want to stay mad at each other. Somehow we're going to fix it quickly. Um, so we would fix it and then it took That's a so good awesome, couple, by the way. Oh, thank you. Um, that it took a couple of years to know each other's buttons, to know how to phrase a question, to, to calmly start discussing whenever we, either one of us, didn't understand something that the other person was saying. So instead of like, you know, if someone doesn't understand something, for example, I just go bring a chart. And uh, I just write out the Indian words for him in, in, he doesn't, he doesn't read Hindi or Urdu. So I would write the, my words, my lyrics to him in Romanized script so that I can just say this part, I can point to the page mm -hmm. and say this part, when I say this word, that's what I'm talking about, that I would like you to do this chord. Or, you know, he says, when you do this part, when I'm playing this chord and I'm like, oh, where are you playing that chord? And he'll like, you know, just, we'll figure out a way of, 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 of figuring, you know, of, of, of communicating. So we've, it took a couple of years and, mm. and, and, you know, after that, um, it was, you know, it was okay. It was rolling along. Well, he was actually, I remember the time we were um, talking, uh, I remember him telling me about how, mu how much of a learning experience it was for him working with someone like you, because uh, you 
Mm, I don't want to misquote him, but I remember him saying about how you're so much more open about mm, sound. You know, a lot of chords and a lot of sound, a lot of mainstream jazz vocalists or mainstream, uh, for lack of a better term, mainstream singers per se, might refer to as dissonant are sounds you really dig, uh, which apparently mm. really, you know, surprised him pleasantly and how it um, gave him room to expand in a certain area. And that was something I, I was kind of hoping to dig into. Um, wh why do you think that is? Is that something you're aware of, that your taste and um, perspective of sound is broader than the regular mainstream singer? And if so, why do you think that is? No, I'm not aware of it. And this is the first I'm hearing of it from you that he said that. Um, there are Am I going to get in trouble now? No, not at all. <laughs> I mean, I mean, he, he's complimenting me. So, okay, um, but, but, but um, and even if we were in trouble, we would make up fast. Um, right. But... I mean, I am aware that many times when we're working together and I'm singing as a melody and he's arranging it, he says, oh, that's out of the rag or that's out of the scale um, and it doesn't sound. And I'll be like, no, that sounds amazing. And he'll be like, really? That sounds like, you know, it's a, this dissonant, blah, blah, blah. But to my ears, it's just plainly not dissonant. To me, it's a wonderful harmony. Um, and then at other times... I'll be singing something and he'll do a chord that is technically within um, mm. within the, the notes that I'm singing technically matches those chords. But to me, somehow it's disturbing me. Every time I sing that part, I get disturbed and I get taken out of my singing and I have to think about, oh, what, what just happened? And so I just have a different ear. Um, I mean, I personally wouldn't dare say I have a broader uh, anything from anybody else. Uh, uh, why, though? Why? Um, I think we all... honestly, do, yeah? listening to your music, I feel like you do. Well, But that's a personal you. opinion, of course. Yeah. Well, thank you. Um... Well, I mean, Rez is the one who puts all those interesting chords in my music. And and so he is the one who brings it to the table. And I'm just saying, oh, well, that one's kind of disturbing me. And then he'll come up with something else that's brilliant. Um, and I'll just ask for things. Like, I'll be singing a part and I'll say, I want, like, some chord that really accentuates this part. And then he'll go through a, low, a lot of them and I'll be like, nope, 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 nope. And then, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll like something. So he's the one bringing everything to the table and I'm the buyer. I'm, I'm shopping for which chord that I want. Um, why about the, 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 I don't know, like, we all have our, we all have our strengths and weaknesses, like, you know, there's things even in Bollywood music that are, you know, good Bollywood music that has some very, very beautiful things in it. Or, um, so I, I'm reluctant to to say I, I am better. Yeah, <laughs> I respect that. I respect that. I wasn't referring. I, I probably wouldn't have used the word better per se 
Mm. Um, even though that's not something I would necessarily shut out as a possibility either. But I'm, yeah, I don't know if you know the whole good, better, worse thing works in the arts. But, um, but listening to your music, it's very apparent that you know you've there's a certain. Hmm, again, I, I can, the only word I can think of is perspective you bring to the table, which gives you the the kind of broad mindedness to um, absorb and accept sounds in a way a lot of artists may not necessarily be equipped to. Um, yeah i mean i think i because i work so closely with my arranger Mm. i can be more honest so i i sometimes you know i'll go to a concert of to of an indian singer who is doing you know fusion music they're they're mixing fusion and western music and i sometimes with what i'm seeing on stage i feel like there wasn't that much, there might not have been that much open and honest communication within, with the singer and the composer and the arranger, you know, perhaps people were polite and they were too polite to say, I don't actually like that chord. I don't actually like that rhythm. Uh, can, can you do this? And maybe the instrumentalists were too polite to say, I'm doing this really neat chord and it would be really great if we could somehow accentuate this chord. Could you change something here to do that? And I, I, I you know, that is something, you know, Rez and I are able to be honest. You know, he can say, can you change the melody here? And then I can say yes or no. And mm-hmm. I can ask him to change the chord and he can either convince me uh, why it, that is a better chord to have or try to change it either way. But all of that talk can happen openly because we are in a beautiful relationship together as well and are not afraid to say we don't like something. Awesome. I agree with you, by the way, in your description of a lot of um, fusion uh, acts. Um, it's, yeah, politeness is... A really great way to put it, and politeness is, can be so uh, uh, hypocritical, really. Yeah, yep, it can be. How, how is your overall take on what usually goes down under the label of fusion? Because I ask, is, um, and how comfortable are you with your label, or your music being labeled with the same? Um... Well, my music being labeled fusion, um, I know that fusion is a four-letter F word for a lot of uh, <laughs> a lot of people. Um, I personally don't mind fusion, but I because a lot of people look down on the word fusion. I try mm-hmm. in my own. Um, uh, in my own write-ups, in my own descriptions, to use the words hybrid, blend, mix, only because yeah. fusion has such a history of an era that has gone. Um, mm. b- but if it didn't have that history, I don't mind the word. But also, th- there's a real um, challenge to describe my music in succinctly. You know, if I'm mm-hmm. not going to do a one hour interview, like if I'm trying to, if I'm at a party and I'm meeting someone and they say, well, what kind of music do you do? It's very hard. Oh, I love those. Yeah. It's very hard for me to describe my music. I have to say, well, 
it's modern Indian music. And that means nothing to anybody. That doesn't even mean anything to Indians. If I say I do contemporary Indian music, it doesn't even mean anything to Indians. And mm. so it's hard to describe my music. I have to say it's contemporary Indian music. It's original. I write my own lyrics and my own um, melodies. Then I have to tell them the instrumentation so that they get an idea. It has drum kit. It has tabla. It has electric bass, electric guitar, and acoustic guitar, and it has organ and accordion so that they get a little bit of a um, an idea of the sound. And then I say, and by the way, it's also influenced by jazz and West African music. Mm. Um, so that's a real big, huge mouthful. And that has been a challenge in my life of how can I describe my music succinctly using fewer words that actually paints an, um, an, an oral, an A-U-R-A-L, a I think how you spell it, an oral, like a, a sonic picture for people as to what mm-hmm. I think. It's just a challenge. So, And what about world music? How do you feel about that terminology? Um, I think everybody in world music is unhappy with the term world music uh, because it simply just means, well, here's music in English or music that is Western or, and then here's everything else in the world. And, and uh, you know, that's Africa, India, China, everything. Um, But no one, and there have been, you know, people spending lots of time in conferences doing um, doing uh, like panel discussions on the fact that world music is not a good term but no one has come up with a better music uh, with a better name global music you know they know that I mean the only better name is going to be calling the music what it is um, this is at first it's African music but it's West African music but it's a special ethnicity within West Africa. It's called Tuareg. So the only only thing is is to be able to say the the name of the genre. This is Guzzo. This is Tuareg. This is Fado from Portugal. But then the problem becomes that we are all still learning about musics of that exist in, on the earth, and so when you do a festival that has, you know, and you want to do music that isn't in English, what do you call that festival? And if you want to attract the kind, yeah, if you want to attract the kind of people that are adventurous and they don't want the same old thing that they hear on the radio, you've got to have some kind of terminology that will attract the kind of audience that you want to attract. And world music, that term or global music will do that. And and so it's very hard to to you. It's very hard to be in a category that doesn't really describe you, and yet you need a category to be able to quickly attract an audience that you want. Are you familiar with the term third culture kid? Sorry, what is that? I'm not familiar with it. What is it? Third culture. So third culture kids. TCKs. Is is the first word third as in the the number three? Exactly, yeah. Third culture kids. No, what does that mean? So third culture kids are basically a generation of people out there who spent the formative parts of their lives, one to ten years old, 
in the culture slash cultures outside that of their parents, so the generation above. Mm-hmm. So what happens is, well, according to psychologists, is their brains basically because they say like the the, the 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 primary development of a human psyche takes place uh, within the first ten years. I mean, it's obviously open to debate, but that's where most of our personalities develop. So if you're growing up, spending these formative years of your life with constantly changing cultures around you, what happens is you basically grow up thinking that you don't really learn to discern or distinguish them as separate cultures per se. Mm-hmm. One way or the other, subconsciously your brain is absorbing that as one and hence building what is a third culture. A hybrid. Exactly, yeah. So mm-hmm. so the, the first generations and culture and the culture of the myriad places you grew up living in um, and the result of the same, which is your own, which is a third unique culture. You're kind of creating your own. I like that terminology. I like yeah, it. Yeah, there's, yeah, there's, there's a lot of uh, literature out in it. Um, I'm happy to send you some. Uh, it, it, it was okay. a yeah. Please do. Yeah, yeah, I mean, reading up on it uh, helped me figure out a lot of stuff about my life and uh, my music too. And yeah, I'm well. If there's ever a vote to uh, <laughs> find uh, found a genre called third culture music. I, I might be signing up for that one. Um, I'm but not then, quite sure but, why I came up but, with that. But if there would be a vote to 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 call a music third culture, uh, yeah, like third culture music or yeah, something on those lines. But then once again, it's just everything. Like it's all kinds of musics that aren't in English that are away from the root of their originating homeland. And it it, it 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 would then include like um, like African Canadian music, right, and Indian American music, and Chinese German music. It would like yeah. include just so many things, like that. It wouldn't be like, for example, when you say jazz, mm-hmm. there's like you you totally right away know what you're talking about. And then you can have yeah. other things. Oh, this is progressive jazz. This is classic jazz. This is this mm-hmm. kind of jazz. You know, um, when you when you say fado, you think of something. When you think Bollywood, you think of something. And and these terms, world music, global music, even third culture. I love the term third culture, but it doesn't create a sonic picture of of what the music is the way the word jazz does, or Bollywood does, or fado. True. Is that a bad thing, though? Yeah, because then it becomes hard to communicate what you do, and then it, it becomes hard to attract people who want to listen to that specific kind of music. I'd never thought about that. You have a point. <laughs> Which I guess is kind of the whole, uh, one of the... Most important aspects of nomenclature, especially for a genre. So, so maybe I won't vote for it. <laughs> well, I still like the term. I think it's a really cool term. Uh, third culture. I mean, third. I can see it being third culture festival and 
you know, then everyone asks, oh, what is that? And then there's an explanation of what the third culture is. But you need that explanation. Yeah. And, and then you need to, yeah. But I, I like Yeah. Cheers. Um, I got to say, though, honestly, I'm afraid because uh, third culture kids have gone into their third generation by now. Mm-hmm. And I've noticed um, I, I've been um, I've been members on a bunch of online groups for TCKs and third culture kids. And I've noticed like generations younger than me are already defining the entire concept in a manner different to mine. Mm. So it's also one ever evolving and secondly, not like that feeling of kinship I felt to a lot of um, TCKs in my generation is not something necessarily I feel with the younger generations. And I don't say that from a judgmental point of view. I'm just saying that feeling of home. When I first found the whole TCK tribe, I was like, wow, finally people who get it, you know, what it's like to grow up in different cultures and uh, not always have the concept of home set in stone um and yet now it's um i don't feel that kinship the way i did maybe 10 years back well i've been i'm curious how do the how does the younger generation describe third culture that is different from you your your definition from my point of view it at times it'll come across a little too entitled for my taste how so in a way wherein um you know, um, if you know how 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 could, how do you even consider yourself broad-minded if you haven't grown up in at least a few countries? You know, like the other way around, and um, entitled in a manner where people just assume they're better because they've had childhoods revolving around many cultures. Just an assumption of being better, mm. and yeah, being better, mm. and that's the part I. Um, not quite at peace with. Mm, okay, right, right, yeah. Yeah, it feels like it kind of you know kind of misses the whole point. If that makes any sense. Yeah, it's judgment. Yeah. Yeah, because I don't believe. I mean, I'm very thankful for the experiences and the perspective. My nomadic childhood uh, and even part of my adult life have given me. But it's you know the idea. One, it wasn't a choice at least not a conscious one. Uh, and second, I never thought of myself as better as a result, just maybe different mm-hmm. at some levels. But um, I, I'm, I'm not comfortable with the idea of thinking of oneself as better. Mm-hmm. It is a thing now, apparently, among a lot of things, mm. uh, a lot of circles. Interesting. Um, we've had a few singers on the, on the show. <laughs> I'm calling it a show again. <laughs> I still can't believe I call it a show. And um, one of the challenges apparently all singers face, and we kind of touched upon it uh, mildly, is communication to the instrumentalists. I actually am not a huge fan of um, this whole division between instrumentalists and singers, because for me, we're all musicians, one way or the other. No, um, you would be surprised. They, they, I know. There are, there are huge divisions between singers and instrumentalists. They, we think differently. Well, I'm both, (laughs) which is why I'm both, which is why I've always felt caught in the middle. And I've had this conversation, too. Uh, Well, I guess at at a certain level, I wasn't left with a choice but to, you know, choose to put it under one umbrella. Uh, It's obviously a debatable concept, but please tell me how your experience has been. What do you think the divide exists and 
what are the differences? Um, well, well so, so one thing I wanted to ask was that when you call yourself both, are you yeah. an instrumentalist just for your music or are you gigging as an instrumentalist for other singers? Both. Okay, so you are. So then you are, or you truly are both then. There you go. You, yeah. You're a third yeah. culture even in music. Um, Apparently, yeah. <laughs> that's great. Um, I don't know if it's great, by the way. Uh, it comes with its, uh, it's a double-edged sword. Uh, well, you it's can, just the way it's been. You can identify. It's great because, I'm saying it's great because you can ident- identify with both um, camps. Uh, I can. I, yeah. I Very well said. Thank you for that. I, I can. And it's, uh, it, it does leave me feeling torn at times. Uh, oh. And I've said this story before. I've been like the last band I was on tour with for about three years was where we played a set of instrumental music and a set of vocal music where I'd be singing. Uh-huh. And it felt like it felt like schizophrenia for me uh-huh. in, in my head. Because yeah. when I sing, uh, it feels like it's a very feminine energy I channel. Mm. And when I um, when I'm playing, uh, when I'm playing the role for the instrumentalist, it feels more masculine for me personally. That's the best way I can describe it. So it's always been, it's, it's definitely a work in progress as far as figuring it all out is concerned. So please give, give us your take. How's, how, what's it like for you? Yeah, it's interesting that you feel that, that, you know, is, are there more emotions that are coming out? It's, is it more communication because there are words coming out when you sing and, and those, you know, that type of word communication and emotions is that what is bringing it a feminine perspective i wonder that's curious about 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 your experience and thank you for sharing that um the question was like why is there a divide or is there one um yeah either i mean it's it wasn't it was a wasn't really a, it was actually a very poorly formulated question which probably is reflective of the fact that i'm not even sure what the question is but Maybe j- well, just share experiences yeah. on. Um, you know, it's I I personally in my latter years when I started out touring twenty years ago, I didn't have a group that I was friends with. I didn't like them. I hired these instrumentalists, but I didn't like mm-hmm. them. Uh, you know, my yeah. first guitar player, I, I I'm gonna say I hated him. I I really disliked him. Didn't want to work with him at all. And, um, it was hard. It, it, it took, uh, it took some time. It took a few years, a couple of years for me to slowly, slowly build a group where I actually love them and we're friends and we can hop in a van together and be in, together for two weeks. Um, right. yeah. And actually have laughs and, <laughs> and, and, and memories and, mm. uh, you know, we, uh, was it last year or two years ago? I think it was last year. We Rez and I vacationed with my tabla player Nitin's family in in Cape, huh. in Cape Cod, and so it, it, it's you know it took took a little bit of time to get that that relationship with my bandmates who are instrumentalists, and um, because I have that relationship, um, and maybe because Rez, my husband, is one of the instrumentalists and the music director of my band, I personally have not come across, um, after I got a, a group of people together that, you know, we all liked each other and were friends, then I didn't have any 
problems or distinctions between myself as a singer and them as an instrumentalist. I am, of course, the leader of the band. That's different. And I, it's my music that, that all that is different, but you know, there wasn't friction caused by the fact that I'm not an instrumentalist and they're not singers. But before that, um, you know, part of the problem probably was, I don't, I don't know. I didn't, I didn't really like the personalities like in the first you know, year that I'm talking about that I was trying to make a band. I didn't like the yeah. personalities of the instrumentalists. And maybe it was that there was, you know, instrumentalists and singers were just totally in two different worlds. I, I don't really know, but I just chalked it up to not liking their personalities. Um, mm. I do know that that differences exist um, out there because... I was doing a work, a music workshop for a platform called jazzvoice.org, which is a whole bunch of jazz singers, um, a, a platform that just started six months ago during, because of COVID, uh, online platform. And uh, did the platform, and after that, the executive director, she uh, said, you know, well, next time, can you talk about the rhythm of Indian music? And I said, well, I surely can talk about the rhythm, but I can also put you in touch with my tabla player, who can talk about rhythm way better than I can talk about rhythm. And she said, no, 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 we don't want any instrumentalist or any man talking down to us. Um, yeah, I, can, I get that. <laughs> I get that. I thought, okay, wow. And she said, you know, you can explain it. And, you know, we're singers and we're women. And, you know, we want to hear it from people that are on the same wavelength as us. Yeah, yeah, I get that. Um, I think institutionalized methods of teaching in itself is a very masculine approach. Hmm. Uh, Sorry, did I interrupt you? No, not at all. I was just thinking about that yeah. institutionalized teaching. Yeah. When you say institutionalized, you mean like learning. See, I've never learned institutionalized music. Like to me, institutionalized means going to a college or university having a yeah. one-hour course on theory, having a one-hour course on practical and all that. I never learned that way. I learned in the Indian Guru Shishya Parampara exactly. Uh, tradition, exactly. whereas you sit in front of your teacher. Yeah, a tradition which inherently uh, considers music feminine. Mm, really? Yeah. I have never oh. come across that... that, that uh, description before in my life well to the best of my knowledge um, music generally had it when in the indian tradition is re referred to as a feminine energy but when i refer to feminine and masculine value i'm really referring to energetic aspects i'm not sure if that's too woo-woo for um, a lot of people uh and not necessarily i'm not referring to uh gender per se I'm referring to um, what more ancient shamanic cultures refer to as feminine and masculine cultures. Uh, energy, sorry, energy, energy. Yeah. Sorry, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've never, I've never thought about it that way. Because um, if you think colleges are all about deadlines and it's competitive, it's it's about deadlines. About it's about proving your worth to a third entity mm -hmm. with. A lot of doubt about who the third entity even is. It's a very fatherly, masculine kind of a thing. Like, okay, you know, um, prove yourself. Here you are. Yeah. Whereas, whereas right. the the 
kind of tradition you refer to, for example, at the risk of making a blanket statement, which is not the intention here, it's more like, let's just nurture first. Let's not think about where this is headed. Mm-hmm. Let's just nurture and just be here and see where it goes. Mm. Okay, that's an interesting way of thinking about it. I, I never thought about it that way. Makes sense. I feel like I'm interrupting you constantly. My apologies. Not at all. We, you had said right off from the bat, right off from the get-go that it's a chat. I love that. Okay. I appreciate <laughs> it. Instrumentalists and singers. Oh, are we still talking about that? Okay. Um, only if you want to. I guess the only other thing I have to say about that, in terms of why does that divide exist, is because instrumentalists, and this is what I asked you, because uh, uh, instrumentalists are always accompanying the singer. Mm -hmm. But singers are almost never accompanying an instrumentalist. Um, At the very least, they're on par and collaborating on equal terms, much like the track that you said you first heard between Rez and I, where mm-hmm. guitar and voice was, you know, equal voices. So unless you're doing chorus and backup, and it would be interesting to see if chorus and backup singers have the same mentality as instrumentalists or the same mentality mm-hmm. as singers. Um, you know, who knows? But that, that that's one thing about the why that's different, is that the singer is setting, is leading a lot of things. They're... they're they're responsible for for leading the 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 or at least establishing the temple. They they have a say in a lot of these things that they're leading and the energy that the song is going to have. Um, and the instrumentalists are there to uh, to accompany, not to be center. Um, so that's one 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 difference that could shed light on the why do we think differently well because we're thinking about different things i'm thinking about accompanying and i'm thinking about something completely different i'm thinking about um mm, you know the song in my head differently than you are i'm just thinking about the song differently so that's the why, or, or no, no, I mean, that, that doesn't answer the question why, but it, it's one little element that might shed light if we were to think or think about it more about the why. May I share a story with you? Yes, of course. Um, so am I, I don't know, I, I studied way too long in college, I <laughs> bear the scars to show for it. Um, and during my second um, stint at college, which was where I finished a degree in as a with jazz piano as my major and switched to songwriting and production uh, and started performing uh, and doing my exams too as a singer-songwriter performer. And one of the things my coach at the time said, he was my head coach, for lack of a better term, for that three-year uh, time period, was like, man, I, and the, the funny thing is he, he was a pianist himself. Um, but his forte was working with songwriters and singers. He says, you know, that stuff you're playing on the piano is fantastic, but there's 
one inherent fact you still haven't wrapped your head around. And I said, what, what, what is that? It's, and he said, and I'll never forget what he said. He said, the minute you open your mouth, none of it matters. You're not a piano player anymore. The minute you open your mouth, it's, you know, it, it, no one's going to care about how intricate your piano arrangements are. Well, you know, at the risk of sounding a little exaggerated. Right. If you're, if you're not 100% on what comes out of your mouth, mm. you might as well just, you know, don't bother. Right, right. You know, your hundred and twenty percent on the piano is not going to compensate for for ninety nine point nine on your vocals. It's either hundred or nothing at all. And it yeah. was a headspace I really took a while to get a hang for and really get what you were saying. It's I'm not even sure it's possible to really explain it, but I think that I mean, when you sing, you're basically exposing your soul. Mm. It's you can't. It, whereas I'll, I'll be honest, I could get away playing a gig on piano even when I'm not at best, even with I'm in a shitty mood. Mm. The mechanics of it are structured in a way where it's possible I could get away with it. I wouldn't, you know, it, it wouldn't go down as the best gig in history, probably in my own books. But I'd get away with it. Mm-hmm. As a singer, I couldn't. Yeah. I, and, yeah. It's, and it's not so much about how well my how fit my voice feels. It's more about how present was I during the moment and yeah yeah go on that that for me is the marked uh, difference you can't fake singing you could get away with faking Mm. playing an instrument i hope res doesn't kill me for saying that (laughs) (laughs) well but uh but I'm pretty sure Rez would agree with me because, I mean, he plays, in, in the, from what I see, he plays with that same level of intensity when he's in the music. Yeah, I mean, there is something to, to what your teacher said and what you are saying now um, that there's definitely some more emotion and feeling that is being portrayed and on performance when you are a singer and Mm -hmm. it's a different thing because um about five years ago was it no i would say in 2011 how many that's four years ago right no my Mm -hmm. god my god that's Uh, eight eight years nine years ago i can't even do math and about nine yeah about nine years ago i started wanting backup vocals um Mm -hmm. and so i just, you know, thought, okay, well, I'm not going to hire backup singers for a tour. Um, so I, I got my, I got Rez, my guitarist, I put a microphone, a, a vocal mic in front of him on stage and a vocal mic in front of my bass player on stage. Um, mm. And my tabla player, uh, he didn't wish to, everyone was invited to sing backup, whoever wanted to, and my tabla player didn't wish to do it. Um and my guitarist and my bass player loved singing and they loved that, uh, they were singing, they were, you know, they said, Oh, all these girls were looking at us from the audience. Even, even, even Rez said that, you know, like the front row, there was this girl, she was looking at me while I was singing and they were aware that they're getting different kind of attention the moment they opened their mouth. And, when they were just even playing a wonderful, wonderful solo within the song. Yeah. 
<laughs> your vi- your, you know, again, this might sound very woo-woo, but your vibration changes. With the minute you sing, your connection to the music changes. Yeah, it does. Because it's not just about, it's easy to get lost into a bunch of physical movements in the name of music. And I'm, I'm, Drez is the last person to do that, just to clarify. Um, yeah, but there are so many out there who are, you know, have fallen prey to that trap time and again, some even permanently, confusing, uh, you know, mechanically uh, accurate movements on their instrument as music. It's not. Which is why Bob Dylan can, you know, move an entire stadium to tears, and he can't. He can barely play guitar. But, you know, <laughs> but he, you know. Okay. Um, <laughs> um, okay. I feel like I went on a complete tangent there. Uh, there is, uh, there's actually some specific questions I want to ask you <laughs> yeah, now with your music. Uh, I'm doing. I'm doing a, the shittiest job ever of an interviewer here. Uh, <laughs> um, I wouldn't say that. Um, I think you're, you're doing the best. Kind. No, I seriously think that you're doing the best job ever because I love that it's more of a chat than, okay, here's the question. You have three minutes to answer it. Um, I've done, you know, God, hundreds, maybe thousands of those, hundreds of those kinds of interviews. Um, and, and it's so much nicer when it's a chat. Thank you. I really appreciate that. And I kind of, you know, try and make it um a point not to have a list of notes and questions because that's not the vibe i want to get into and uh, yeah so far so good i'm keeping fingers crossed yes um um seven billion is the album i've been hearing the most um these um when it uh, when it came to you know in quote marks again researching uh, what you do um, I heard some of your earlier albums too, but Seven Billion was j- just happened to be the one I've been listening to the most. Mm-hmm. And um, there's a song, for example, um, something else. I've forgotten the Hindi name, the Urdu name for it. Kuch uh, Aur. Kuch Aur. Thank yeah, you very much. Yeah. And that's that's based on a Motown, James Brown kind of a groove. Yeah. Uh, um, what's interesting, though, it is also reminded me of a certain era in Bollywood music uh, in the 60s, I think, and 70s. So here's the question I was really, here's the thing I was really curious about. When you had that arrangement done, were you, was it a reference to that Bollywood thing happening or was it a reference to your North American roots? It was, it was uh, a reference to Motown and soul music. Um, and the first lyrics that I wrote were English. No way. Yeah. So I wrote, I set out to write my first ever English song with that. And, um, so I definitely wanted something funky, Motown-y. Uh, I thought that, you know, that's where I can enter writing in English. And so I wrote English lyrics and Rez did not like them. Um, hmm. and that, that doesn't mean that they weren't good because Rez is not, he doesn't listen to a lot of singers even in English. So, so he might, you know, the lyrics might still be good. I, I have yet to have someone else hear them. Um, but hmm. because I was working with him at the time and he was not inspired by them, I just, uh, I became shy to continue composing and, 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 and trying to convince him 
about that and I, I put it to rest and I converted. I still loved what we had come with. I still loved the the guitar riff and the rhythms that that he'd come up with. And so I, I didn't want to throw the entire song away. So I I um the chorus I basically translated from the English. The, so the English chorus is um I've been doing it all wrong. I've been doing it all wrong been living this life so badly all along and so that's the those the english words and i i I just converted them into urdu um i never learned how to sing Uh, so i never learned how to how to live um and then the rest of the words did not convert so easily so i i I created new words for the rest of the song but the, the main chorus the main line never learned how to live come directly from the English words that I had made originally well I gotta come clean I, I love the English lyrics too but the minute you uh, uh, quoted the same in Hindi or do um, it's clearly the winner oh really oh yeah oh see it's interesting you're, that you're the second person that has heard the English ad, so that's interesting that you're saying that okay I mean, the English lyrics are badass too. Don't get me wrong, but it's like the minute you sing in Hindi, like yeah, that's it's still the winner. <laughs> that's very interesting for me. I'm still thinking. It's interesting for me because there's there is a blues singer who is a friend of mine, uh, hmm. and you know she's asked me if we want to collaborate, and I've been thinking about how can we collaborate, and I've been thinking should I should I revive these lyrics or not, or should I start a new. Um, so it's interesting, that feedback. Huh. Well, I'd be super interested in hearing that collaboration. As would I. <laughs> um, how, how's it, how has it been, how were your first experiences in, with the press? Mm-hmm. I, I'm, I, I don't know if this is a weird question, but, um, there weren't a lot of people doing what you were, if any, at all. Mm-hmm. You know, did did he ever uh, like work with the PR agent on how this whole how your art should be marketed or you know to spread to people, or did he just let it be? And how, how just how was the whole experience for you? Um, I worked with a, I worked with a PR person for every album. And and mm-hmm. a lot of the tours that I've done, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. Uh, it's definitely the PR people, but it's mostly my managers. Uh, you know, who, my manager that 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 um, my my very first manager was the one who um, you know came up with, interviewed me, wrote the press release, and 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 figured out you know how are we going to market this. Um, and then after that, you know, there was a combination manager PR, and, and it was later that I thought, you know, this is not the story I want to tell. Uh, there was one time I think that when I did um, when I did a collaboration with the Portuguese Fado singers, the the press release it was for for the album called Wanderlust was talking all about this collaboration, and it was huge and it was wonderful. Uh, you know, going to Portugal for a month and and living there and collaborating with them, the press talked about the press release talked about that, and then therefore, 
the radio shows I went to talked about that as well because they've been fed the press release and they don't go anywhere outside of it. M- not much anyways. Mm-hmm. And and that's when it occurred to me like, wow, I, you know, no one's asking me about the fact that I'm collaborating with Rez. He does jazz music and I do Indian music. And that whole collaboration has taken a bit of a lifetime to do together, you know, years and years to put together and, and sort out. And then, so that, then I, then I started taking a little bit more ownership of how I want to present the music. And in every press release, I definitely talk. There's always a paragraph where I talk about just the collaboration between me and Rez first. Mm. That's pretty awesome. And uh, I really, really respect you taking that conscious step to have done that. He's also a musician who really deserves that. Absolutely. So thank you as a Reza Basi fan for that. <laughs> how's it been the other way around? How how's it feel when you're working on his albums? That's like a whole different ballgame again, isn't it? That is completely different. Completely different. And um uh we argue more. <laughs> even more? <laughs> I'm really interested in that. I would I would say we argue much less when we're working on my music. Touch wood. I hope we don't have an ar- ar- I hope I didn't jinx it and I hope we don't have an argument today. <laughs> nah, um, nah, you but won't. but we've 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 worked more on my music and so we've honed it out more. We've toured more with my music, so we've honed it out more and we've 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 you know ironed out a lot of the bumps. So that's why my music is is I would, you know, say pretty smooth going now between him and I. Um, I haven't been a guest artist in his uh, music for quite a number of years now. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's a completely different beast because um, you know, I'm trying to fit into a jazz band. And uh, I'm trying to then perform for people who are like in my mind, you know, I'm thinking like, oh, what is that noise that is coming out of her mouth? Um, wow. And what is she doing? Um, and most people, you know, after the concert, just say they come up to me and say they love it. You know, there's a record label person who said that specifically said that he loved my inclusion on the record. But but when I'm doing it, the point is that I feel like I'm an alien. I feel like everybody in the band is speaking one language and I'm speaking some other gobbledygook. Um, mm. And and finding my place in the band is hard because they're, Rez writes very complex music mm-hmm. um, that does not lend itself easily for a vocalist to fit into. Um, the chord changes are complex the rhythms are complex that are being played and 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 and, you know vocal like like for example in an instrument you can jump around the scale a lot faster because you you're hitting a note you're striking a note whatever instrument you're playing with the vocal you can't jump around notes that fast that quickly um uh, like you can do fast runs, but those runs, when you're doing fast runs, they're not notes jumping around huge intervals. They're like, they're, they're adhering to like a little bit of a scale, you know? Yeah. Um, so that, that's different. And so like, uh, you know, so 
a, a guitarist or an organist might have, you know, just done a very rhythmic solo and then it comes to the vocalist and then it's like, okay, I'm not going to try and be an instrumentalist. I'm going to try to be who I am. So this is the part I'm bringing to this band. I'm bringing something different. So just accepting that this is something different and I'm bringing a complete, yeah, just a completely different thing to the band. But oftentimes it, it you know, it, it's, it, 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 that's basically it. That's the, that's the hard part is, you know, the fitting in part and, and how to fit in by accepting that I'm going to be different. What have your tools been to make the process easier? Well, it's helped when people afterwards say that they loved it. Uh, mm. That's helped. Um, I remember we toured in Spain for a month with his group and, and, and that community, the Spanish community. We kept coming back to Madrid after a lot of the concerts and and doing these concerts for musicians at a club that was mostly for musicians that they would come to after their own concerts. So our set, which was for musicians at this club, you know, there'd be a hundred, 150 people there. Um, our set would start at 1am. Wow. The community there. And then I up there to Spanish singers who were like pop stars already in Spain. So a lot of that helped a lot of people telling me that they liked it helped me feel like, okay, it's different, but people like it. Uh, so that helped me feel more comfortable with it all and more confident with it, with it all. Would you say audiences in Europe generally have a different reception for you than in the US or North America? Um, oh. Yeah, I'm thinking about that. Uh, yes, um, they do. Like Europe is has, it, has its eyes on the on the world more than America does. Hmm. Um, but Canada has its eyes on the world more than America does as well. Yeah. Um, but the, the thing is that the population of America is larger than the population of Canada and the population of one country in Europe, I think, anyways. Yeah. Uh, um, and so even the small percentage of the pie in America that do have a gaze on the world ends up being a pretty substantial audience for me. Yeah. But, but uh, like, like in, in North America, I would say like the West Coast is very receptive to my music. And when I say, uh, you know, my gauge, my barometer for who's more receptive isn't like one concert and the audience I had at one concert. Mm -hmm. The audience is, you know, mostly always nice wherever I'm touring, whichever concert it is, whatever region of the world it is in. But I'm talking about the number of concerts I can have in a country or in a region. So in the Western part of North America, I can, there can be lots of little, little, apart from the major cities, there can be lots of small little towns that I can go and have a concert in. Um, whereas in some parts of the world, like the Eastern part of Canada, I can only like do a couple of major cities and then I have to get out of the East and, you know, go to central Canada and do a couple of major cities like Quebec city, Montreal, Toronto, and then, you know, get out of there and then do, you know, the majority of like small, small concerts in, in the West, mm -hmm. kind of like that, not exactly always like that, but you know, kind of like that. Gotcha. Um, 
I can't help but come up with a completely random question when you describe a travel plan like that. What do you do to take care of your voice on a schedule like that? Uh, well, when I was first starting off in music, I couldn't go party with the band. I couldn't drink at all on tour, which was a bummer because, mm. uh, you know, a nice little drink at the end of the concert can really help to bring the adrenaline down and get you in a place where you can go to sleep and rest yeah. and, and rejuvenate. Um, but I didn't like that because, you know, it was always fun, always, you know, after the concert to go out. And, you know, you'll understand this. Being an only child, you value yeah. you value company dearly. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and good company. So um, after the first couple of tours, I just I got used to it. Like, you know, I could go out. And now I can definitely go out with the band. And um, the kind of things I do is like you, I, we sleep, if we can, we sleep later uh, on tour. Like sometimes we have 8 a.m. flights and you can't sleep. But trying to rest as much as you can on tour, um, that doesn't mean like, you know, if you have a day off, you can't go out. You can go out. But not doing humongous outings on the day off, just, you know, a little bit of an outing. And then I always, when I'm on tour, if it's not the summer months, then I'm all, I always have a scarf around my neck. Always. Mm -hmm. I, I don't expose my neck. Uh, and that, that, that's a, that makes a huge difference just to keep your vocal cords warm. Yeah. And then, you know, there's a whole bunch of herbs, like there's, um, if you're, if I'm ever feeling like there's something in my throat, I, I carry things with me like, um, oil of oregano, um, hmm. which you can't, well, you shouldn't take a lot of, but in a pinch you can take it just to, um, you keep a cold from coming. Echinacea, there's this Indian herb called Tribhuvan Kirtirasa. Uh, again, if you feel like a cold is coming on tour, just to take it right away to ward it off. Um, mm. Yeah. I use ginger and clove. Yeah, it's never done that. It's never helped me. I in the Really? Winter, yeah, in the winters, I regularly, just on a regular basis, uh, drink ginger tea because I just love the taste of it, uh, mm -hmm. and, you know, and clove. And if I'm getting a cold, it's not going to stop it. it. It doesn't stop it for me. Gotcha. But I still love yeah. the taste. It's yummy. And, and ginger, yeah. ginger heats up the body, so it's definitely something very good to have in the winter. Gotcha. Um, wow. Um, but that's great that it works for you. Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, I, I got to be honest, Will, in my case. Um, well, to start off with, my schedule looks nothing like yours. So um, that's an entirely different league of commitment. Uh, touring, uh, I always do like, I'll do a couple of weeks and then I always come back to Germany to kind of take days off. I rarely go on uh, tours that long. And secondly, the kind of singing I do is nowhere close to uh, technically, as technically mm, demanding as yours, I'd say. Right. Uh, um, it's, it's more about the lyrics and... Uh, yeah. There are two other things I should mention if there are singers listening. There's two other things that you can do. Uh, one is, uh, is uh, 
uh, it's called laryngeal massage. And hmm. so a couple of years ago, I mean, there was there were a couple of exercises I had just Googled to open up my vocal cords. But a couple of years ago, I did a stint for four months at a theater company um, where I was singing and acting. And they had uh, vocal coaches for me, uh, uh, one, you know, one or two vocal coaches a week. And the vocal coaches would massage my larynx, my throat. Wow. And from them... I saw how much my vote, my my voice really opened up, and I, I had a very grueling schedule of of rehearsals, like you know, like ten to six p.m. rehearsals, and it was a lot of strain on my voice. And because of these massages, I was able to survive. So I learned techniques from them before I left. I said I want to be able to do this myself, um, and I've learned from other massage therapists how to massage my jaw because your jaw is often stiff. And how oh, yeah. To, yeah, and how to massage my throat. So that's one thing is massage. And the the third thing is the quality of the voice and the tone of the voice is very connected to your to your emotional state as well. So, so uh, if you're upset, then that affects your voice. Even even if you're mildly upset or stressed about something that will constrict your vocal cords. So I try not to get upset on tour. And what I mean by that is that if there's something really small that isn't happening my way, I, I let it go. I'm just very cognizant of, eh, I'm just going to let this go. Um, like if, if I end up at an airport and I'm supposed to have my bags free, you know, and they're like, you know, we're not, no, 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 we have to charge you. And we're like, no, no, we have this special card and you're not supposed to charge us. I might just give that over to Rez or somebody else to talk about. Like I will step out of that conversation so that I'm not arguing arguing about that. Or if it's a very small amount of money, then I'll just let it go. I'll just pay it. That makes so much sense. That's a gold nugget there. Thank you. Hi, welcome. Um, before we taper off, and uh, thank you, by the way, for, for your time. Thank you for having me. No, no, no. Pleasure is all mine. Honor is all mine. Oh, no, mine too. Um, a couple of questions I want to ask you before we let you off. The Number one, what are your um, words of advice for um, up-and-coming artists, uh, younger generations, who are trying to figure out where their place is in the world of arts and music, especially with all the stuff going on? Um, and I know it's it's hard to kind of pinpoint it to one or two points, but if you could boil it down to your most important ones, what what would it be? What does it? What do you think the anatomy of an artist is in this day and age? Um, the anatomy of an artist in this day and age, and there are some exceptions. You know, there's always exceptions, but I guess for me, is what I'm going to say, has been mm -hmm. to wear a lot of different hats. So um, you've got to be an artist, but apart from that, you've got to figure out how to market yourself. That means you've got to do some research. How are other people marketing themselves in, in your genre, in other genres, even in the pop world? Um, mm. How can I make a video myself? I'm going to learn iMovie editing myself. Um, uh, I'm going to be more keen about all the films I watch and see all the camera angles they take because I'm going to be shooting my own band myself. 
awesome. and maybe even myself. So um, how to, in, these, in this day and age, learning more about sound technology, because we've been doing live stream concerts on my Facebook page and on my Instagram page. So uh, talking to like sound, uh, sound salespeople and saying, this is the kind of sound I want. Um, I want to be away from the mic because I don't want it to block my face. Um, I'm not in danger of any leakage uh, coming in from a drum kit because I'm not playing with a drum kit. What kind of mic? What kind of mic exists out there for me? Exists out there for me? Yeah. So like learning about sound, uh, even when you're touring um, in the normal world, like normally in person, like knowing more about the sound. If I don't like my sound, what words can I tell the sound engineer so that he understands what to do in order to make me happier in my sound? Um, figuring out how to do your own PR, figuring out how to be your own um, administrator, like doing, you know, moving a set of, I did, uh, three years ago, I did a tour, which was a huge tour called Love Fest. We had 14 people on it. So being, you know, figuring out how to move 14 people from place to place. Now I did have wow. a, I, I had, had a manager to help me, but still a lot of the research was something I did myself as well. So it's wearing a lot of different hats. It's, you know, writing your own bio, hopefully with the help of getting people to help you, but also having a say in it. You know, entrepreneurship and technology. I guess. Yes. Mm-hmm. For someone like you who's managed to find such a unique voice, what's your advice on that? How do people do that? Authenticity. Um, that's a hard one. It takes years, right? Uh, so, you know, we are taught to, in Indian music, we are taught to copy our teachers. So mm-hmm. we come out, we pop out when we, you know, are ready to sing for the world on a stage we, we, we start out imitating our teachers Hmm. and then it's a slow process of thinking, you know, my teacher never did this, but I like it this way and I'm going to try it this way. Uh, so it's a slow process of, of, of finding your own voice and everybody has to find it differently. Um, and, and give yourself the time, give yourself a couple of years to find, how you're going to be different than what you've been taught. And then after that couple of years, when you've got your first couple of steps in being your own person, then evolution will take over if you continue and you will just continue on your own path and continue to evolve. So patience. Yeah. And commitment. And, and yeah. Awesome. Kieran, what's the best way to support you and where can we find you online? Um, I mean, these days people are just not purchasing any kind of music, so I'm not even going to go there. I would say right, right now, what I would love to have are more Spotify listeners, more listeners on my Spotify, uh, profile of my music. And I would love to have more subscribers on my YouTube channel and the YouTube channel uh, is Kieran music one, which is K I R A N music one uh and spotify is my name kieran alawalia uh last name is a h l u w a l i a excellent and uh, we're gonna have all these links on the episode notes by the way oh okay awesome 
Oh, thank you. Yeah. No, for my listeners, yeah. So please go, you, uh, please make sure you go check those out. Keep going, though. I interrupted you again. Usual, um, and just, you know, keep in touch. Um, c- connect on my Facebook uh, fan page. Uh, it's lovely, lovely and encouraging and heartwarming to hear from people all over the world. Uh, thank you for take, doing this uh, interview from Germany. It's very heartwarming oh. to be able to just connections with people all over the world cheers it's it's a pleasure to have had you on and uh, honor is all mine and i'm not just saying that this whole podcast thing is kind of the well it was a marriage of covid and my uh, single child desperation to connect I think. <laughs> <laughs> but it turned out pretty okay because it gave me the chance to finally reconnect to a lot of people i've had the chance to be in my in the past and also connect with um, newer people who i've always been super curious about who've been kind enough to come on and uh, share the journeys and stories so thank you so much Karen. um and, thank uh, you tl and please please send me a link to both the podcast where i can hear your conversations with other artists and oh yeah yeah absolutely absolutely and please send me a link to your own music i definitely will i definitely will fyi i'm just gonna stop recording just so you know gratitude from the bottom of my heart for listening to the very end Please consider taking a minute to subscribe to our show so you know when the next episode is out. This is a labor of love, one I hope snowballs into one that's sustainable in its attempt to support independent thought and authentic relating. But having you as a regular member of our audience is what makes that a realistic prospect. Much love, talk soon. Just another voice out in.